It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hi, I'm Becca. Hi, I'm Eric. And you're listening to Jackalope Carnival, a sideshow of stories, a bi-weekly podcast where we explore the paranormal, the unusual, and the downright odd. In our last episode, we strayed a bit from the cryptic and paranormal to discuss the history of a quintessential carnival sideshow attraction, wrestling. And while we do have a part two of that coming up, we're going to stray a little bit again from the cryptic and paranormal. Not so much, maybe, the paranormal. Yeah, um, not, not entirely. And look at another, you know, vaudeville carnival staple, uh, magicians. And if you're a fan of the show Arrested Development, like I am, um, you probably heard their illusions, Michael, <laughs> in your head. Um, <laughs> if not, please watch that show. Do you remember Doug Henning, uh, who is uh, an illusionist in the 1970s? I do not. And okay, he used to have these, it was him and David Copperfield. They were fighting for like the supremacy of the TV special illusionist, except Doug Henning was like the super hippy dippy guy. He was like hippy dippy magic guy. And he talked like this. I'm Doug Henning and welcome to my world of illusion. And so I keep hearing that too. <laughs> well, illusionists and their illusions have something that does. We, we, it does fit Jackalope Carnival because we do talk a lot about belief and we do talk a lot about this idea of suspension of belief or things that you do believe. And I think that when people go to see a magic performance, they generally do go to hold their belief, to be in awe, to see something that they maybe never have saw before or that they might not think is possible. Some people go to try to figure out how that's done. Uh, what do you think on that, Eric? I think that in the past, the, the folks we're going to talk about today, I think they were willing to encourage their audiences to suspend their belief a little more actively. I feel like by the time we get to the late 20th century, like, like I said, I remember watching both Doug Henning and David Copperfield's TV specials, and they were really good, or at least you know, when I was a kid, I loved them. But they made no bones about the fact that they were doing illusions, right? That these were tricks. And they were clever tricks, but they were tricks, right? Penn and Teller have the same thing. But I think that in the early 20th century, the two men we're going to talk about, they didn't necessarily trumpet that they were doing tricks. Well, uh, Ellsworth, um, William Ellsworth Robinson, who I'm going to talk about, he actually did in some ways. He wrote a book that kind of uh, exposed spiritualists. And, hmm. and I'll talk about that. I'll talk about this right now. because. Gotcha. Um, April 2nd, 1861, just days before America is going to be torn apart by the Civil War, quite literally days before, William Ellsworth, William Ellsworth Robinson was born to Sarah Robinson and her husband, James Campbell Robinson. And he's born in New York. And we've talked about that time period. This would be around the third. We talked about this in a previous episode. This would be about what, Eric? What happens in around like 1855? This area has got a lot of spiritualism. It's got a lot of religious ideas. It's one of the great awakenings. The burned so over district, right? So yeah, he's born about. in this time where he's going to have 
in his gr growing up, he's going to have a lot of input about different ideas, but also magic, also theatrics, because his father, uh, James Campbell Robinson, was seasoned in almost every aspect of 19th century theater. He worked as a stagehand, stage manager, agent, magician, hypnotist, performer, you name it. And during William's childhood, his father was employed. They actually moved to Manhattan. And his father was employed in something called Harry Hill's Concert Saloon. Now, I hadn't heard much about these concert saloons before, so I had a really fun time and probably spent too much time researching these. He was employed at Harry Hill's Concert Saloon in Manhattan. Now, a concert saloon was... It did have performances, it did have entertainment, but it's primarily a saloon. And many of them had this reputation as being dens of ill repute. There are some books at the time that describe this as the best of the worst places. So Harry Hills was <laughs> not a great place. It was actually um, frequented by Thomas Edison, <laughs> became, becoming one of the first places to be illuminated. Mark Twain went there once and wrote about it. So these were places that were a little controversial because, say, women of ill repute were said to have been frequenting them. Now, a career in theater at that time wasn't exactly upper echelon, but there were respected and admired performers. They wouldn't have been performing at Harry Hill's Concert Saloon. <laughs> so, William... Was alcohol served there, too? Because... Oh, it was, that was basically the point of it. It's a concert saloon. So it's a saloon. Got it. And, and that's not going to help their, that's yeah, going to help their public opinion much. Had some vaudeville acts going on too. The longer you can get people to stay there, the more they'll drink. So this is the life that, you know, young Billy Ellsworth uh, Robinson grows up with. And he was taught by his father about magic. So we have to, we have to guess that he probably, Loved it. He got the theater bug. His father teaches him magic. And at 14, he starts going professionally on the vaudeville circuit. So, you know, he probably knew people from his father's connections. And that's kind of lackluster. He does perform, but people don't really like him very much. as his <laughs> persona. He doesn't really have much of a persona. He's uh, technically a good music a magician. He performs as himself, and this is important when I say he performs as himself, a young, white, American man of Scottish ancestry. You might be thinking, Becca, why are you pointing that out? It will become apparent soon. He's performing these, not really getting anywhere. He ends up doing small acts in shows that are headlined by much bigger magicians in their day. Notably, Alexander Herman, who's a French magician who was world famous. His father was actually a magician. I actually found his father to be really interesting. His father, Samuel Herman, was a doctor and a magician. So he was a doctor magician, hmm. like an actual physician. And he physician, was physician magician. Like, yeah. He was, you know, magician, maybe doctor. I have no idea on that one, too. Like, royalty in Turkey. So they traveled around. He had this pedigree and Robinson works for him. He also works for Harry Keller, who is known for these tricks. One's called self decapitations, this illusion where he makes his own head, you know, he appears to make his own head come off and float around and talk to people. Wow. And one called the levitation of princess Karnak, where 
he would magically make a Hindu, and I'm putting quotes around this, Hindu princess levitate. Why did it have to be a Hindu princess? <laughs> this is, And we're only on the threshold of how awkward things are about to get. No, it's not awkward. I mean, I feel like it's really timely. So why a Hindu princess? Why a Hindu princess? Well, because Keller and William Ellsworth Robinson were working in the 19th century. And at that time, there was a particular interest in images, stories, and symbols from the East. Again, quotations. I'm going to use the term Orientalism here. Now, the term is obsolete in a modern context, but in the 19th century, and now I'm directly quoting from the Encyclopedia of Islam and the Muslim World. Orientalism was the style or character of anything typically associated with the Orient. In the 19th century, the term could also denote an enthusiasm for things deemed Oriental. In literature, art, and music, it referred to the vogue for imitating or depicting observed and especially imagined, okay, imagined <laughs> scenes from Underline the Orient. Underline that one. It's now mostly used to refer to a derisive valuation of the Orient, a prejudiced view associated with the history of Western imperialism in and toward the Orient, as well as imperialism's legacy. But in the context of their time period, well, you could levitate a woman. Mm, that's okay. But levitating a Hindu princess, now that was something noteworthy. That <laughs> caught the audience's attention. And he's not the only person to do this by any means. Keller... You know, he added his razzle-dazzle by choosing this element that people would find exotic. But this was happening in Europe as well. German magician Max Ozinger adopted the persona Ben Ali Bey, and he performed a show called Egyptian and Indian Wonders. And I've seen a picture, and to me, it looks like he's wearing something out of Lord of the Rings. But <laughs> apparently 19th century audiences thought it was Middle Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, like, you shall not pass. I, that was, yeah. Gandalf the Egyptian. I'm really not sure what he was going for. So he performs an illusion called the Black Art Act. And I had to look this up because I'm pretty bad at describing this. So I went to magictricks.com and they give a great description. It says they use the theatrical principle of concealment with stage lights slightly pointing toward the audience it's impossible to distinguish the edges of black cloth when held against a black backdrop so for us when you wear all black and you go on zoom or you wear blue and you're on the or even for me the green and then the green background and suddenly your whole body is turned into the green screen with only your face visible that's the kind of thing so Whatever this was, this is how they did the Black Art Act. They would put kind of a, I mean, I don't know if they were using neon paints. I really don't know the technical, what they had back then. But when I've seen pictures, it looked kind of like neon painted on things to make them stand out. Probably like uranium. Background. Remember the uranium girls? <laughs> it who... No, it really probably was uranium, yeah. to be fair. I'm like, yeah, it looks like neon paint. Did they have that? But you're absolutely right. It's probably... <laughs> something cancer causing and far worse. So anyway, they do this to make this illusion where things are coming out of the black backdrop and floating and vanishing. So Robinson, he travels and he sees this act in Europe and he likes it. And, you know, he's been trying for a while. He's, you know, 26 by 1887. 
he's been working for how long? <laughs> he's been working for a while and he's not really getting anywhere. And I'm not sure what goes through his mind, but I imagine he must have realized he isn't going to make it in magic with his own persona. So he borrows this black art act, but he borrows a little bit more too. He actually just takes Ozinger's whole act and persona. He starts to do a black art as Ahmed Ben Ali. And so oh, he Ahmed just takes ben the, Ali, the name yeah. and everything. Yeah, basically. He just Ben Ali Bey to Ahmed Ben Ali and then just decides to go out. And he's finding that he's getting booked a little more. He's getting a little more money. Things are going a little better for him. He even manages to um, poach one of the assistants of Alexander Herman. So he's doing pretty well. Her name's Dot. And she's kind of important because I want to bring up something here before we get too far into this story. Robinson gets married. He's married in the U.S., and his first wife, her name's Bessie Smith. She had been one of his assistants. They get married. People didn't really divorce back then, I guess, or for whatever reason, he chose not to divorce her. Uh, they're still married. Then he gets with Dot. So right. I see where this is going. <laughs> Olive Dot path. Um, so she's going to be with him actually till the end of his life. They too get married. He's still married to Bessie Smith. And that's not the end of it. He ends up in London, and we'll see later he goes to London. He gets with another woman and has two children, and she becomes his wife. Um, she's kind of the Mrs. Robinson, <laughs> literally on the side. The, nice. She's Mrs. Robinson as well. This man has three wives, and no one mentions this as part of his scandal. Because what could be they, so scandalous? <laughs> there must be some there. Yeah, I can't wait to. There's got to be more that you're going to unpack here of having three that wives. No one mentions that he just walks around with three wives. Well, he he starts having things go better, but he's not going to get the fame and fortune he'll actually find. In 1899, a magician traveling from China, performing in New York by the name of Ching Ling Fu, is performing at the Union Square Theater. And the crowds are going wild. Ching Fu is well-known in China. He is well-respected. He has performed for the Empress. And nobody has seen these kind of acts that he's doing. His most famous act, he has a few. One is he pulls a 15-foot pole from his mouth out of nowhere. And this dazzles people. Hmm. Uh, one, he beheads one of his servants who turns away and walks off stage headless. <laughs> Beheading was apparently pretty popular in the 19th century. Yeah, magicians. You know, and that's something else if you kind of want to psychoanalyze this. Like, people are willing to see these darker things on stage where <laughs> they would, you know, especially 1899, still Victorians kind of going toward Edwardians. But, you know, this wouldn't have been okay. Well, they probably watched a lot of hangings. But yeah. in polite society in a theater, you wouldn't do that. So... His other, and this is the big one, and this is the one that's going to change the history of Billy Robinson's life. He pulls a bowl full of water out of an empty cloth and then pulls a baby out of the water. That is impressive. He materializes a bowl of water and a baby. This is going to be something that Fu is so convinced that no one else can do. He's going to issue a challenge. And he claims that he's going to give $1,000 to anyone who could duplicate his water bowl trick. Hmm. Now, 
Eric, you're a historian. Thousand dollars back then. Oh, you should have told me beforehand. They have those inflation calculators online. But, uh, significant amount of money is the yeah, only thing I'm going to venture to say. <laughs> yeah, like, very significant amounts of money. Right. Eric if you give a me a historian? second, I'll actually look it up. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. So he's going to give a thousand dollars to anyone who can duplicate this water bowl trick. Now Robinson, he's been watching food perform, and he figures he could do it and earn the money. There are several different accounts of this. Some say that Fu was never going to pay anybody. This was a publicity stunt because $1,000 was such a large sum at the time. What year is this again? 1899. Got it. Because $1,000 is such a large sum at that time, people it would get people's attention. Other people say that Robinson had tried to do another one of Fu's tricks before in another challenge, had failed, and Fu wasn't going to give him the time of day because didn't think he was worth it. And some people say that he tried and he didn't do it. So it really depends on what source you're reading. I've seen many different ideas. I ran this through an inflation calculator. Yes. And the... The sum of $1,000 in 1889 would be worth, according to this one, uh, $32,891 today. So we're talking like, you know, laborers, you know, yearly income thing. type. Yeah, we're not. We're talking that not bad for, you know, an hour's worth of work there. So. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think he's actually going to part with his money, though? So keep that in mind um, because I want you to look up $5,000 in 1904. All right. So regardless, Robinson is pissed off. He came to do this trick. He felt like he could do the trick, but he doesn't get to. He doesn't get that money. And so he does something that he's done before. Now, this is going to take. I don't know. This happens somewhere in the span of two years, but from 1899 up until 1901, suddenly Robinson shaves his beard, part of his head, puts on a ponytail wig, buys some traditional Chinese clothes and props and reinvents himself as Ching Ling Su, Mm. the wonderful Chinese conjurer. So he does what he's done before. He's stolen an act and he's stolen a persona, but this one goes deep. (laughs) he makes dot his assistant illegitimate wife lover um her name's olive dot path she reinvents herself as sue seen and she's his chinese wife (laughs) and assistant and they hire a japanese man named frank kamataro to be the translator and so when they get interviews Frank, who was a showman too, he's a Japanese juggler, he acts as this translator. So someone will speak to Frank in English. Frank's Frank, who can't speak Chinese, he's Japanese, <laughs> <laughs> speaks some made-up Chinese over to Robinson. Robinson responds back and Frank will be like, he says he's doing very well today, thank you. This is so uncomfortable. <laughs> so the level here that he goes to It's like, is his magic more of a performance? Is his life more of a performance? Is his persona? It's all. I mean, everything is a performance at this point. He doesn't have a legitimate wife. He doesn't have a legitimate identity. And he's stealing everyone's tricks. But he becomes world famous for this. And, you know, I should also say that when we're talking about this, Edward said, who writes a book in the 70s about Orientalism, he points out that the Orient, in Orientalism and with this 
ideology, the Orient is not precisely defined area, but this product of imaginative geography. <laughs> um, and, imaginative and you, geography. That's, wow. That's a great phrase, see actually. This. So he gives this fanciful backstory about himself. He doesn't speak, like I said, he doesn't speak on stage. Very rarely does he say anything. But somehow, I'm assuming it's through Frank, he says that he's half Scottish and half Cantonese. By the way, this is a, a white man of Scottish ancestry, and he people are believing he's Chinese. Totally, totally believing. Oh, okay, sure. I so, guess he's going to little towns where, like, they... No, he's performing in London. In point. London, okay. In so, London, in New York. Like, so, he is world famous. There are almost certainly actual human beings who, who were born and lived in China in London at that time. Like, so here's the thing. And, and this will come through and, and I'll, um, we'll get there. So like, how is he doing this? Well, one thing I did read, I'm going to bring this up as an aside. Like he's so, he's got so much moxie. Let's use that word. So I think it's a time appropriate that there was a scholar who did some work on his signature, both Fu and Sue had signed this guest book at this place. And of course, you know, Fu being an actual Chinese person from China, speaks Chinese, writes Chinese, and he writes his name in Chinese. And he said when the scholar says when he looks at Ching Ling Su, it's made up Chinese. He just writes some gibberish. Oh, man. <laughs> so he's writing in made up Chinese. He's speaking in made up Chinese. And he's also saying that he's a high caste and he's such a high caste that he can't sully himself by speaking to people who wouldn't be the same caste as him. So this is one of the way he gets away with gaslighting, essentially, people who might be trying to make him. So. <laughs> In some ways, as, though, so because you know what? Actually, this reminds me of the the show we did on on uh, wrestling in some ways, because in wrestling, there was that that period of time where they talked about kayfabe or the act you know yes. the wrestlers would adopt this act and they wouldn't break it you have examples of of american wrestlers who were born in minnesota who their gimmick was that of a you know evil russian and they would literally not be seen in public speaking english like in you know going to the grocery store uh without without adopting their persona so in some ways it feels kind of like that yeah, except that he stole an act and a persona from an actual person. And oh, it's going to get worse. Nothing it's I'm a, saying here is, is in, in yeah. any way meant to um, say that what he's doing is okay. And because he's, he's, he's obviously, he's dressing up in another culture's costume here, right? As a costume, I should say. Uh, he's doing yellow face, right? Is, is that the correct term? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, that's what he's doing. Right. So um, th there's a lot of. I mean, I'm not in any way saying this is cool. This is certainly very not cool in so many ways. Uh, but at the same time, I'm saying that it's it seems similar that, to that to me. So in 1904, <laughs> um, and I've seen actually seen people say 1905, but I'll just go with the 1904 date here. In 1904. Uh, Sue's in London. So we'll call him Robinson at this point. Robinson's in London performing his uh, Chungling Sue act. And uh, guess who else is there in London? No, oh, no. No other than. <laughs> Steps Ching about to go Ling. down. Yeah, no, literally Chingling Fu. Now, Chingling Fu is the real deal, but he's having trouble booking things because his 
rival is being promoted so voraciously and people already know him. So they are believing this man, Chingling Su, whose illusions are stolen directly, some of them from Chingling Su, from Chingling Fu. Um, it's actually his stage name as well. But he can't get people to come to his shows. He is considered, rather than the original, he's considered the copy, right? <laughs> so what happens is, is that Chingling Fu is starting to talk. He's not gonna, he's saying, look, this guy ripped me off. This guy is not even Chinese. This guy isn't the real deal. And you'd think that people would have believed it. What happens is so much moxie has Chingling Su, Chungling Su, sorry, William Robinson. He has so much moxie at this point that he challenges Chingling Fu to a duel of magic. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. To see whose magic is better. Yeah. And again, um, although I'm not in any way uh, giving any kind of what's the, what's the word I'm looking for here? I'm not saying that anything that, that Robinson is doing is cool. That being said, a duel of magic sounds awesome. And I would pay to see that for sure. Well, somebody was wearing the Lord of the Rings outfit to me. <laughs> but, Even better. Um, yeah. So what happens is that... Chung Ling Su starts to talk bad. Robinson's talking crap about Ching Ling Fu to the press. He's saying that he was a street urchin that comes from nobody. I can't be bothered. I can't sully myself with talking to him. I can't, you know, he's not the real contender. I'm the real person. And Ching Ling Fu is just like, forget it. He's disgusted. He's embarrassed. And he leaves four weeks later, leaves London and goes back other places. So believe it or not, William Robinson won that round. People were so willing to believe that he was the real thing. However, things have a way of working themselves out. And I will say that William Robinson did not meet a happy end. Did his wives catch up with him? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a thought. So he does this trick, and this is in 1918. In 1918, he's on stage. He's well-established. Like I said, he's a well-established magician. He's in London. He has his stage wife and his real uh, third wife, who's not really his wife. You know, he's lived there. He's got three kids with the one wife and Dot. And I'm bringing this up because people have some questions about this how this happens. So this contend to death by boxers trick, Robinson has assistants and he has them dressed up and he has them fire guns in him. He catches them in a clay plate and, you know, he holds up the, each time it's done, he holds up a bullet to show that he caught the bullet. Who handles these bullets and hands them to him? Well, none other than his assistant, Dot. She hands him the bullets after he's shot each time. She handles everything. This is why I'm like, hmm, did she? So we don't exactly know, but something happened where attendants, his assistants, they fired the gun at Sue. First one works. Then it doesn't. And he actually is shot. Hmm. Um, and, you know, this man who said he couldn't speak English, the last words the audience hears are, oh, my God, something has happened. Lower the curtain. <laughs> wow. That is Which, a dramatic ending. 
And they're also shocked because he spoke English. Right. So not only are they shocked, they're still thinking this might be part of the show. But then all of a sudden, you know, his persona completely changes. And he is shot and dies performing that particular act. Um, Now... The public is shocked to learn he's not Chinese. I mean, amongst magicians, they knew, but they all had their own tricks and their own secrets. So, hmm. Why I say that is, again, you know, Dot had her hands around everything. It was... (laughs) It's interesting, too, because I was reading some primary sources. So I was reading some articles in the London newspapers. And after his death, there's this scandal. And I was reading it like, what? Um, The wife with the kids, wife number three, was taking someone who was also with the show to court to say that he stole a ring from her. And the article talks about wife number two saying she's Robinson. No, she's Mrs. Robinson. And so this actually came out afterward where they were feuding Mrs. Robinson's over his estate and over the identity of being his wife. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there's a little bit of overlap uh, between his wives, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, there's a lot, unfortunately, for them. Um, I was the the fellow I'm about to talk about, uh, who who also is a stage magician, but he also is going to meet a fairly dramatic end, although not nearly as scandalous. And it's funny. It, funny. Funny is the exact wrong word. It's interesting. Did Robinson ever get in any trouble with the law uh, for either bigamy or for anything else that he was doing? I don't think so. And my thoughts, even if he did, he was, you know, I think he probably would have gotten out of it. Gotcha. Uh, well, the fellow I want to talk about is is a fellow by the name of um, his stage name, at least, was Black Herman or Professor Black Herman at the time. And he is one of the most fascinating individuals of his era. I will come out and say that. And I say that because not only was he an entertainer and a stage magician, he also ran his own version of the medicine show, you know, like in the 19th century where folks would travel around peddling usually useless (laughs) cures that were high octane alcohol, usually with some herbs in them. And they would say like, you know, this will cure what's wrong with you. You know, you got gout, drink this. Um, He would do a little bit of that. Uh, He had a mentalist act. Uh, He had an escape artist act. He was also got involved in some social commentary. Uh, He was hanging out in Harlem around the same time as Marcus Garvey was. And he started to work some of his social commentary into his act as well. I don't know if I mentioned this already, but this fella by the name of Black Herman, that was his stage name, was an African-American performer. Or Professor Black Herman, that is. He was also an entrepreneur and perhaps an author. There's some question about how much help he got with his book. Mitch Horowitz in Occult America speculates that he may have gotten help from Henri Gramache, who was another African-American, I think occultist might be the right word, who may have either ghostwritten it or helped out with writing it. So we're not entirely sure that he wrote his autobiography 100% by himself. Which is for celebrities then and now, I think is kind of the norm. He did all of this. He had all of this happening at once. And he traveled around the country doing it. And at a time when fame for African American performers was uh, elusive, 
he held himself on stage with a lot of dignity at a time when roles for African-Americans were often humiliating. He presented himself as a learned man and person of high status. And indeed, when he finally made his way north and bought a house, he bought it in Harlem and he was part of the Harlem Renaissance. And he held salons in his three-story brownstone in Harlem where he would bring intellectuals to discuss issues of the day. So this is a pretty fascinating fella. But he honestly, his bread and butter is his traveling act. The slogan that he used when he was promoting his shows was, catch Black Herman, he only comes through once every seven years. And the, the, you know, the idea was is that he will come to your town once every seven years. Now, obviously, in some of the bigger towns, he came more often, or some of the smaller towns, he might have only come once. But that was the idea. That was, that was kind of his, his catchphrase. He also created a fictitious story for himself. He said that he was born in Africa, that he was taught his magic powers by Zulu witch doctors. That's a direct quote. That's not me. That was what he told folks. In reality, he was born Benjamin Rucker. And we're not even entirely certain when he was born. He could have been born in 1889. He could have been born in 1892. One of the other main sources I used for research this week was an article by Dr. Yvonne Chereau, who is a professor of religion at Swarthmore College. And she wrote an article in 2007 that is in Cabinet Magazine. And she says, uh, and actually Mitch Horowitz says the same thing. There's some other things I bumped into online that said 1889. So we'll go with 1892. But he's born in 1892, let's say, and he's born in Kentucky. He's, as far as I know, I didn't read that he ever actually traveled to Africa, but he traveled quite extensively in the United States, both North and South. And in the South, of course, he had to, because he was a, the man of, of the time he was living in, he was forced to only perform for African-American audiences. But in the North, he was actually performing for mixed audiences and had a lot of followers and a lot of audiences and a lot of people interested in his work from all different social classes. He actually sold out Marcus Garvey's Liberty Hall in Harlem for a month straight once, where he did daily shows. So he was quite the popular entertainer. One of the mainstays of his act was when he first came to town, he would put on a free show. And the free show was sort of like a teaser. And what he would do was, is he would get into a coffin and he had this assistant, Washington Reeves, and Washington Reeves would then wheel the coffin to Herman's private graveyard. And then they would put him in the ground and bury him. And then a couple of days later, they would dig up the coffin. And it would appear that that Herman would pop out of the coffin, you know, no worse for wear and do his show, even though he'd seemingly been in the ground for three days. And that was part of his shtick. Yeah, so, but that's that macabre thing, the decapitation, the popping out of a grave. The, right. Uh, you know. Right, right, right. And because it's going to it's going to have an impact on the end of his life. So there, that's a little foreshadowing for you. Uh, oh, I see where you're saying they had something in common. <laughs> right, right, exactly. He also did a mentalist act though, where he would he said that he could um, speak to spirits of the dead. And the way that he did that is he actually sent Washington Reeves out to graveyards, especially when he was working in the South, he would send them out to African-American graveyards and Washington Reeves would find 
tombstones of people who were recently deceased and then write down the names of those folks. Because it was likely that if someone had just died, that their their grieving relatives might go to the show and then Professor Black Herman would work that into his show. Yeah, and actually I think that was a that's a pretty common um trick of the trade practiced, yeah. Sure. It still is today. But now of course you Google. And I'm sure he would have too. <laughs> quite possibly. So that was that was part of the whole act. Uh, there's another great story though, where he sends Washington Reeves out. Well, Washington Reeves turns out also was a bit of a drinker. And so he sends Washington Reeves out to the to the graveyard, but Washington Reeves apparently takes a detour to the spirits shop before he finishes. <laughs> you his said errands. spirits. <laughs> I didn't even intend that, but I'll take it. Yeah, spirits of a different sort. He's seeking both kinds. He gets trashed. He's stumbling around the, the graveyard. And Professor Black Herman knows exactly what the limitations of his assistant are. I guess good help is hard to find, or he's a friend. Actually, he has quite a reputation for helping out folks. Uh, he wasn't just a person who made a lot of money and kept it to himself. And even back in New York, he was known to employ folks full and part-time. And he had kind of like a little cottage industry that he was running. And he made sure to kind of spread the wealth around the community, which I think is pretty commendable. He seems like, a, I, I tell you what, I would have loved to have met this guy if I was alive back then. I think I would have found him incredibly fascinating. I don't know if he wouldn't be friends with me, but I would want to be friends with him. That's for sure. So Washington Reeves is passed out in the graveyard. Let's get back to this story. And he tells his other assistant, you know, well, I think maybe we have to go round up Washington. So he heads out to the local graveyard, but he runs into a group of older teens looking for trouble. And they see this, well-dressed man and they're thinking, Hey, you know, we can mug him and, and take his money. So he, again, he, he's not breaking kayfabe, right? He's, he won't, he won't leave his act. And so when the young toughs start kind of giving him the business, he's like, I'm not giving you anything. I am professor black Herman leave or I shall use my occult powers, you know, type of thing. And of course, you know, they're, they're like, give us the money, whatever. It's like, well, you're making me use my necromantic powers to, to defend myself. And he shouts at the top of his voice, Washington Reeves, arise. And of course, drunk Washington Reeves, who's behind a tombstone and passed out, hears his name and it's his boss. And so he, he stands up, <laughs> but he's like kind of shambling around like, boss, you know. He's slurring his words. So he looks like the picture of an undead person, you know, and the, the, apparently the guys were scared out of their wits and ran away. So know your audience, I guess. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't mug a magician. They'd be like, <laughs> Just like there's my $5. It's behind your ear. Yeah. I wouldn't, that would be bad. <laughs> right. like, oh, take it. I'm leaving. <laughs> this, this isn't the last we'll hear of Washington Reeves though. So, at the end of, of anything else you want to know about him, I did a lot of reading on him. I find him fascinating, but I, I feel like for the sake of keeping our, our podcast at a reasonable length, I don't want to just ramble on about this fella, but he has so many interesting things about him. He has, there's so many kind of anecdotes that, that you can tell. Well, be sure listeners that 
Eric will at some point ramble on to me more. And um, if you have the desire to hear more, he definitely will. For you there well. you go. You can, yeah, it, this is where, this is the moment of their show where we talk about our Instagram. So yeah, drop us a message on <laughs> Instagram. If you want to hear more Jackalope. stories. Carnival. Um, and actually, you know, I will admit that I am not on it quite as much as I should be, um, but with more engagement, I certainly will. So um, there we have it. We, yeah. There's an Instagram. You should go to it <laughs> and say more Professor Black Herman. I would love to hear more. And maybe we'll talk more. Well, about hopefully, it. you're going to tell us a little more. <laughs> maybe so. I am because I'm going to tell you about his last act. Where he has, unfortunately, he meets his end on stage. Although, with such a, a man who has such an interesting life, he started this when he was 16 years old. And he will continue doing this into his 40s. And according to one story about the end of his life, he dies on stage. And I, I honestly think this is a fitting end for a person who's lived this fascinating life to also have a fascinating ending, not to in any way withhold from someone, you know, a peaceful ending, but maybe that happened. And we're not entirely sure because the sources conflict on this one as well. So both about his death and his birth. you don't even know when he birth, was born. Right? Some truly of the information a, is, is... A man of mystery. He, truly a man of mystery. He is indeed. But I want to believe this is true, that he was on stage and he suffered a heart attack. I don't want to believe that part. But the audience was so used to seeing the unbelievable from him that they refused to believe that he was dying. Even when he uh. was wheeled off stage, because he had already had an act where he was put into a coffin and put into the ground. Again, they thought this was part of the act. They didn't think there's any way that this could be the end of Professor Black Herman for real. So, so the same thing happened to Robinson as it, far as the disbelief of the audience. Postscript. <laughs> Washington, I don't think I'm, I'm never going to a magic show again. <laughs> Washington Reeves, after Professor Herman is embalmed, Washington Reeves will then tour with his body and charge people money to see his corpse. Oh, that's yeah, that's dark. Oh, <laughs> it's like it's like Washington when, Reeves. What, last when show, did though. he die? Uh, he died in 1934. Oh, ah, that's a little late for that. You oh, know, 1834, it is. I'd be like, okay, yeah, they kind of did he's, that. But yeah, and he's ugh. he's laid to rest in Harlem in New York City. So you can you can visit his grave if you like. And I wish for his spirit a peaceful rest. He deserves it. He had quite a run here in his mortal life. So that's what I have for stage magicians this week. Uh, we have one fella. Uh, both people who blurred the lines about reality and fantasy in their stage life. And one who blurred all kinds of lines all over the place. <laughs> yeah, what but, are laws? What are laws? <laughs> blurred lines in that in that uh, pop song kind of way. Yeah, creepy, too, with his three wives. Right, all yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Professor Black Herman was a... a a highly successful entre entrepreneur and showman um, who gave his audiences a taste of the fantastical and the unbelievable, you know, in, in all for the uh, price of a ticket. To be fair, um, as far as magicians are concerned, Robinson's uh, up there. His uh, tricks are well respected. Um, I don't particularly respect it, but what a story. <laughs> all right. <laughs> 
Well, that's all we have for this week. Thank you all for listening. And we will be back in two weeks. Hope you all stay safe and well. Take care, folks. Jackalope Carnival. <laughs> Sorry. Bless you.